Well, friends, the year was 1880, and young Jacob, 15 years old, decided he was going to go in. He was going to go into this tunnel, about six feet high, about three feet wide, had kind of a a stream of water flowing at the bottom. He was going to go in and explore, but it's pitch black. So he goes in, probably about 60 feet, and he was going against the current, and so he stumbles and falls. He's okay, but in losing his footing, he puts his hand on the walls to steady himself. And as he steadied himself to get up, he noticed that the, the carvings in the wall, this was, a, this was a, a tunnel that had been carved out of solid rock. And as he felt the chiseled marks, he felt a difference in the chisel marks. He felt like he could feel writing, what he thought was just, you know, barely etched letters into the wall. Now, he knew a number of languages at 15 years old, and he kind of inferred that perhaps this could be maybe a kind of Hebrew, potentially. Jacob had unwittingly found one of the most significant Hebrew inscriptions anywhere in the world. He was probably a hundred feet under the top of Jerusalem and he had found what we now call the Siloam inscription. An inscription in ancient Hebrew that commemorated the finish of Hezekiah's tunnel. King Hezekiah was Hezekiah and King Hezekiah was the king in Jerusalem around seven, I don't know, 705 BC. And he had commissioned his engineers to tunnel through solid rock from the top of Jerusalem outside the city near the Gihon Springs to tunnel all the way through under Jerusalem and build what we now know as the Pool of Siloam where Jesus performed some miracles, that he was going to divert the water from the Gihon Springs under Jerusalem into this pool of Siloam. It was an engineering feat. Those engineers, with no sonar, no navigation, this is 701 BC, no sonar, no modern means of navigation, were able to dig from either side and meet in the middle. In fact, this is what the inscription says in ancient Hebrew. This is the story of the tunnel. As the work neared completion with only a small distance remaining to be excavated, a worker's voice was heard calling to his fellow laborer, like between the rock. The laborers carving from both ends, they met in the middle, their picks striving one against the other. They were carving through a third of a mile into solid rock. The engineers were so good that every 100 feet, they would lower the incline an inch. Basically, it's a half degree grade all the way through that would make the water come through at just a a consistent, like soft rate. What would cause Hezekiah to put all of the time and the effort and the resources 
to divert this water from the Gihon Springs down and create the Pool of Siloam. Why not just go out there and get the water? What would cause someone to do this? One word, Assyria. The name itself conjures up images of of fear and danger and slaughter and terror. Just that one word, Assyria, conjures up such fearful images. What would cause Hezekiah to hew through a third of a mile of solid rock? Well, this passage is going to answer that question. So, beloved, please stand for the reading of God's word. Remember, as we're leading up to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these sermons are anticipating the celebration of Advent as we work our way there. We're going chronologically through the prophets. Last week, we were in Hosea. This week, we're in Isaiah, and we're going to get closer and closer to the advent of Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 36, verses 1 through 15. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, think about 701 BC, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. So these were going to be the ambassadors of the Hebrews, the negotiators, if you will. Verse 4, the Assyrian field commander said to them, now I'm reading from the NIV in case you're wondering, the Assyrian field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, tell him the following, this is what the great king The king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, well, we're depending on the Lord our God, Yahweh. Well, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now. Make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Well, how then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt 
for chariots and horsemen. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the Assyrian field commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out, implied in a loud voice in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When Hezekiah reassures you that the Lord will surely deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. How in the world does this passage relate to Advent? Do you have any idea how a passage like this should prepare our heart for Advent? The answer is that the shadow of Emmanuel falls all over this passage. In fact, the context of Isaiah 36 and 37 is the rejection of perhaps the most significant Old Testament prophecy ever communicated. We've already confessed it. We love it. It's quoted in Matthew. The virgin will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel. That prophecy was given roughly 30 years before the events of this passage. And Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was on the throne at that time. And Hezekiah's father, the king in Jerusalem, faced a difficult crisis of his own. Judah was being invaded. Jerusalem was threatened to be overcome. Ahaz didn't know what to do. Enter maybe the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, onto the scene. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, trust in the Lord. Don't worry about these nations that are threatening you. I will provide for you. I'll care for you. I will deliver for you. I will even give you a sign to show you that I'm capable of doing this. Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, in false religiosity says, no, thank you. I don't want the sign. In response to that, God said through Isaiah to Ahaz, well, you're going to get a sign. 
The virgin will give birth to a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. Ahaz rejected the sign, ironically. Guess who Ahaz reached out to for help? So Ahaz is being threatened by two nations to his north. Ahaz can trust in the Lord and God's provision, or Ahaz can trust in someone else. Do you remember your Old Testament? Who did Ahaz trust in? Ahaz got on the hotline and called Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Ahaz called the Assyrians and asked him for help. Asked the Assyrians to be their redeemer and their deliverer. And guess what? The Assyrians obliged. They came down and destroyed the nations that were threatening Jerusalem. But guess what they did? to Ahaz and the Jews in Judah. They made them a vassal state. And so from that point on, the Hebrews in Judah were vassals. They were subjects of the king of Assyria. Fast forward 30 years later. Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, I think that's the 12th generation of Davidic kings since David. Or 12 generations later. Hezekiah is on the throne. He's not like his father. He's a godly king who wants to bring reform to Jerusalem and Judah. And he tells, basically in modern vernacular, he tells Sennacherib, go jump in a lake. We worship the Lord our God. We worship him alone. We will not be paying you tribute anymore. You can get lost. That did not go well for the people in Judah, the people in Jerusalem. When Hezekiah says that, ultimately the Assyrians come down and they invade. And they conquer and destroy, as the text says, all the fortified cities in Judah. They just lay waste to the entire area. Look at verse 2. This is fascinating. Then King Hezekiah sent his field commander with a large army from where? From Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Do you know that to this day you can go and see the siege ramp that this Assyrian field commander built to conquer Lachish, which is 30 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. It is the oldest known ancient Near Eastern siege ramp that has ever been found. Over 22,000 tons of stones were piled up outside the wall in Lachish so the Assyrians could ultimately go over the wall. It had 22,000 tons of stones over 200 feet wide and 200 feet in length and had a mortar on the top. Google it when you get home you can still see the actual siege ramp to Lachish. Well, that was viewed as like a defense city for Jerusalem. And once it had been taken, now all that remained was Jerusalem. Over 200,000 Assyrians, the best soldiers in the world, had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Demanding that the doors be open. Incredible. 
Hezekiah said, no, you cannot come in this city. I am not opening the doors. I can remember, I've told you before this story, but when I look at this passage, it always reminds me when I was about eight years old or 10 years old, and my mother and I, we had gone shopping somewhere in Charlotte, and we come out to our car. You may remember this story. I just have to tell it. And I could see in my peripheral vision like a large, unkept man with a large beard um, who had kind of a lumberjack shirt kind of following us at a distance. I just noticed that. Stephanie calls me safety man. Well, it, it, it was helpful on this day. My mother was oblivious. I could see this guy in my peripheral vision. He's kind of shadowing us. We get in the car. I yell out, please lock the doors. My mother locks the doors. Instantly, the man is knocking on my mother's uh, car window, on the driver's side door, knocking on the window. And she is saying, what do you want? What do you need? What can we do? I was like, mother, he wants to kill us. Please put the car in reverse and let's get out of here, which she did. Thankfully, she did not open the door or roll down the window for this crazy man. Hezekiah said, no, I'm not rolling down the window and I'm not opening the door. So the field commander asked for a meeting, asked for a parley, asked to kind of negotiate. Look with me at verses three through six. Eliakim, these are the Jews that were sent as diplomats or ambassadors, negotiators on the part of the Jews. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, who was in charge of like recording all of the events, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. Now he is speaking to Jews and he says, listen to what the great king, the king of Assyria is saying. How is he referencing the king of Assyria? He is referencing the king of Assyria as the king of kings. The great king, the king of Assyria. He's telling the Jews who worship the king of kings, that the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, is the king of kings. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? So he is speaking to Hezekiah through these intermediaries. So this is, this is directed toward the king in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem has this massive wall around it massive wall it was a thorn in the side of other nations because of how defensive and how strong the wall was around Jerusalem this is what the great king the king of Assyria says on what are you basing this confidence of yours Hezekiah you say you have counsel and might for war like you're acting like you can actually put up a defense but you speak only empty words on whom are you depending that you rebel against me. Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff who, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. So he was aware that Judah had an alliance with Egypt at this point, okay? We have actually found, so we're, we're, this is kind of an archeological Sunday. Pool of Siloam inscription, 
unbelievable. Now you have, um, they found a clay seal about a centimeter wide a number of years ago in an ancient dump outside the southern wall in Jerusalem. It's now referred to as Hezekiah's seal. Universally agreed, legitimate. And it says on there, Hezekiah, king of Judah, son of Ahaz. On the bottom of it, you can still see the, the imprint of like the cords that it was, it was bound with when the document was sent. On it, it has a winged sun with the wings facing downward and two Egyptian hieroglyphics. It's probably a record of a letter that was sent from Hezekiah to Egypt in terms of diplomatic relations. Unbelievable that these things have been found. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is aware of a connection between Judah, the southern kingdom, and Egypt. And he's saying, I, I hope you're not depending on Egypt. Please tell me you're not relying on Egypt. They're a joke. They're not going to be able to help you at all. Look at the text. He's starting to taunt Hezekiah. The field commander is. The field commander says, come now. Make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. So he's laughing at them. He's mocking them. Even if I gave you 2,000 horses, you don't have enough soldiers to ride them. It'd be like if we gave a, a very impoverished country like, you know, 15 F-16s and said, here, even if we gave you these, you don't have pilots to fly them. Your army is a joke. Verse 9, how then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You know, Hezekiah, what are you doing? Open the doors. Look at verse 10. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. So to summarize what's happening so far, his argument is, you know, um, we, we've got you surrounded. Um, Egypt is a joke. They can't help you. Your army is pitiful, and your God told me to come. That's a pretty compelling argument so far. Okay, look at the response in verse 11 of the Jewish emissaries. This makes all the sense in the world. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. Since we understand it, don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Well, Aramaic was the language of diplomacy. Okay, your regular Jew inside Jerusalem would not have understood Aramaic. So the Jewish emissaries were concerned that if the people in the wall hear what's going on, they're going to engage in a mutiny, in a revolt. They'll open the doors for the Assyrians, so please speak to us in Aramaic, in a language the people don't understand. Because the field commander is speaking in a way that everybody can hear. Look at verse 12. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, 
when we engage in this siege, when we cut off all supplies to the city, we'll have to eat their own excrement, their own filth, and drink their own urine. Oh, no, I'm not going to speak in Aramaic. I'm going to speak in Hebrew. Every one of them needs to hear this because they're going to endure the suffering just like you. Verse 13. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria, the true king of kings from their perspective. This is what the king says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of of the king of Assyria, use your brains, people. You have no chance, no shot. I mean, he is a master motivator, this Assyrian field commander. He is very uh, psychologically informed in terms of how to engage in this negotiation. You can hear him now change his tone, soften his tone, okay? Look at verses 16 and 17. He's basically going to say, look, I'm going to send over some travel brochures in a a minute, and I just want you to see what Assyria is like, because that's where I'm going to take you. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is panel six, by the way. Sorry about that. Go to panel six. You got to admit, this is exciting for people who don't like panel six. This is good stuff, right? This is really... This is very interesting. If I stopped the sermon here, it would be very disappointing, at least to me. Um, Verse 16 on panel 6, Isaiah 36. The field commander changes his tone, soft, um, alluring. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Just open the doors. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. You know, why would you suffer all of the effects of siege warfare when I can take you to the most amazing place you have ever been. I'll give you your own land, your homes, your vineyards, all of these things. Just just open the door. Open the door. Go to verse 18. He's still reasoning with them. He's saying, people, please, Be reasonable. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? The answer was no. No one had been able to stand against the king of Assyria. Verse 19. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Very powerful argument. Very, very powerful argument. You've got no army. 
Egypt can't help you. God sent me, and we're undefeated. And so why suffer this? I'll take you to a wonderful place if you just open the doors. I received an email this week from um, one of you and forwarded me an article, forwarded me an article from the Washington Post um, from October 3rd. Um, And to me, this is the modern voice of Sennacherib today. What does the modern voice of Sennacherib sound like today? Reasonable, understandable, just open the door, let me in, everything will be fine. Are you really trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Really? You're really trusting in him? Your hope is in him? Don't, don't all the religions of the world think they're right? Don't all the religions of the world think their way is the only way? Why in the world would you believe in Jesus of Nazareth? So the author's name is Kate Cohen, and she wrote a book called America Doesn't Need More God, It Needs More Atheists. Subtitle, um, I'm sorry, that's the name of the article. The name of the book is We of Little Faith, Why I Stopped Pretending to Believe, and Maybe You Should Too. Okay, so the article that was sent to me is titled America Doesn't Need More God, It Needs More Atheists. Here's her story. And I really do think this is a, this is a good modern equivalent of the way that the world would speak to your heart and mind, asking you to open the door, a metaphor of, of unbelief. She writes, I like to say that my kids made me an atheist, but really what they did was make me honest. I was raised Jewish with Sabbath prayers and religious school, a bar mitzvah and a Jewish wedding, but I don't remember ever truly believing that God was out there listening to me sing songs of praise. I thought of God as a human invention, a character, a concept, a carryover from an ancient time. I thought of him as fiction. Today I realize that means I'm an atheist. It's not complicated. My non-belief derives naturally from a few observations. Now remember, what the subtitle of her book is. Why I Stopped Pretending to Believe, and Maybe You Should Too. She says, The Greek myths I learned are obviously stories. The Norse myths are obviously stories, she writes, extrapolate. Extrapolate from there. The holy books, she writes, underpinning some of the bigger theistic religions are riddled with facts, in quote, now disproved by science and morality now disavowed by modern adherents. Extrapolate. Life is confusing, she writes. Death is scary. Naturally, we want to believe that someone capable is in charge and that we continue to live after we die. But wanting that to be the case doesn't make it so. Child suffering, war, etc., she writes. And here's how she concludes this little section. 
You know, it shouldn't be hard to say you don't believe in God because she feels like there's a, a stigma attached to referring to oneself as an atheist. It shouldn't be hard to say that you don't believe in God anymore. It shouldn't be shocking or shameful. I know that I'm a moral person and respectable and friendly. These are the words of the field commander today. You can be good and moral. You can love your wife and your children and lead a very thoughtful and meaningful life. You don't need to believe in another myth or legend. You know, just be honest with yourself and everything will be fine. That's the modern field commander today. And that argument can be very powerful in certain contexts. A lot of our children today, as they kind of go out into the world, will hear that kind of reasoning and rationality. Maybe we have friends in our families. We're about to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas and have all kinds of family gatherings. It would not be unlikely for a very thoughtful, intellectual cousin or uncle to have this perspective. We're going to land the plane here. Verse 21, Isaiah 36, but the people remained silent. They said nothing in reply because the king Hezekiah had commanded them, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, they went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. They were undone and they told him what the field commander had said. They go back to Hezekiah, tell him Hezekiah shows great concern. He sends them to Isaiah to talk to Isaiah to get counsel again. So here we are, 30 years later, almost the exact same scenario. The shadow of Emmanuel is looming large here. Look with me, Isaiah 37, verse 5 in your bulletin. Who is Hezekiah going to trust? when the rubber meets the road. When Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. You go back and you tell Hezekiah this, listen, when he hears a certain report, meaning the field commander, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Verse 33, therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or so much as even shoot an arrow here. Now think about how... In inconceivable this is. There's over 200,000 Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. You can go see the siege ramp that was built in Lachish and the, the ruins of the people that were slaughtered there and God is telling his Davidic king they won't even shoot an arrow at your city if you trust me. That's pretty amazing. Verse 33 Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this 
enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before, before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it. Why? On what basis? For my sake and the sake of my servant David. The shadow of Emmanuel looms large. God will save his people and save his city, not ultimately for their good, although it will be for the sake of my servant David, to honor my covenant, to preserve my people, I will save you. Look with me at verse 36. Now, last thing I'll say, one more second, this just is mind-blowing, last little um, archaeological um, little uh, piece of pottery we found. They have found a piece of pottery called Sennacherib's prison. Six sides to it, Sennacherib's prison. Written in this cuneiform that is dated exactly during this time, Sennacherib recorded this battle from the Assyrian perspective. He says, on that prism, I have trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. And it goes on to describe, you know, how Hezekiah was totally surrounded. Guess what it does not contain, because it's full of brags and boasts. Guess what it does not contain? It does not mention that they won the battle. It does not mention anything about taking the city. Why is that? Verse 36 and following. The angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the true David. Went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there, and then ultimately he was killed by his own children. Beloved, who are you going to trust in the difficult times of life? You know, the claims of the world, they seem reasonable, they seem persuasive, they seem compelling, the craziest thing of all, a virgin will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel? That's where we're placing our trust. You better believe it. That's where we're placing our trust. The son of David and the person of Christ are Emmanuel always, always, always delivers those who trust in him and we're going to be reassured about this and reminded of this week after week after week beloved this is just incredible stuff as we prepare the way for advent let's pray our gracious god and father we do thank you for um the ways that the creative and differing ways you use to defend protect deliver and redeem your people we know that your word is always true. That when you said that not so much as an arrow would be shot at the city of Jerusalem, that that came true in every respect. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that for the sake of your servant David,
you delivered your people and gave them a snapshot of a much greater redemption and delivery to come. We thank you for giving us, David, our Emmanuel. Prepare our hearts for this wonderful season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.